Good to be with you here again. What a joy it is to be with all these pastors and to be here on the joyful occasion. Something lets me know it's something special. Maybe it's the 50th anniversary of John MacArthur here at Grace Community Church. John, we're thankful for you. Uh, you, you hear that all the time, but I don't get to say it all the time, so this is my chance. So, brother, thank you so much for your ministry in so many of our lives. Uh, throughout John's ministry, it's been marked by clear, solid conviction drawn from the Bible. If you've listened to the man preach, you know this. You know that he is utterly convinced. He is convinced of the superiority of the new covenant. He is convinced that ministry is a mercy, that the minister must have a pure heart, as Sinclair was saying earlier. He is convinced of his own insignificance, as he preached from 1 Corinthians 4 this morning. He's convinced of the benefit of suffering, of the need for courage, and that the future glory is better than anything this world could ever offer him. Amen. Those are good points, aren't they, John? Actually, they're the points of John's new book <laughs> that you were given from the Shepherd's Conference to each one of us. I had the privilege of reading this in manuscript a few months ago. It's the new book you were given. It's on Paul called Remaining Faithful in Ministry. Uh, and the Shepherd's Conference has just given each one of us a copy of it. Uh, don't just throw this away. Don't think, oh, it's just free. Brothers, read this. It's really good. The size of it makes it even more useful for us. Uh, for us, and honestly, I think for all of our elders, this book asks a very important question, what are we to do in ministry when we encounter setbacks? Now, I realize that may cut a lot of you guys out, but there are a few of us here <laughs> in the last year who may have had a setback or two. This book is for you. In this book, John presents nine reasons that Paul did not lose heart. And this book is a concise treatise. It is marked by typical John gospel clarity. It is filled with timely observations, and it is so short. It is accurate. It is direct. It is encouraging. It is clear. It is plain. Here, John has produced a portrait in words of the Apostle Paul. Paul, who was following Christ, and by depicting Paul's life, he's depicted Christ's life. And that's what the faithful minister should do. In fact, I think unintentionally, John here has written his own autobiography. So I think if you read this, you'll find things that we've seen reflected in your ministry, brother. And we're thankful for that. Please take your Bibles, open them to Colossians. This is the part you'll like, John. Open them to Colossians chapter 1. Let me read for us, beginning at verse... 24. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. <clears throat> now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So Paul writes here in verses 26 and 27, and then again you see in 2.2 about the mystery that is Christ. Uh, it was this mystery that Paul had been commissioned to tell. You know, God is glorified when the truth about him is told. He's glorified when the truth is displayed in his creation, and that's what Paul is doing here. Real Christian faith is centered in the mystery, which is this open secret, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say, if you are here, you've made it to the Shepherds Conference, and you are not a Christian, you're not only not a pastor, but you're not a Christian, you've come with a friend, they've convinced you to come, this is the very center of everything we're talking about all week, that there is a God, that he made every single one of us in his image, that we have all sinned against him. We've done what we know is wrong. And God, in his amazing love and kindness, has not simply, merely condemned all of us, as he would be completely right to do. But God, in his amazing love, sent his only son to be incarnate, truly God and truly man, and have, has lived a life of complete dependence on his heavenly father, just as his heavenly father would. Jesus is the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Son of God incarnate. And then he lived a perfect life and he died a death on the cross in the place of all of us who had ever turned from our sins and trusted him. And God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven and presented his sacrifice to his heavenly Father who accepted it. And we're called, all of us now, to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ. Friend, that's true for you here tonight. If you are not a Christian, that message I just gave is what every single one of our messages is about. It's what every single one of our churches is about. It's what every Christian that you know is about. My friend, it could be what your life is about. Tonight, speak with someone that you came with. Talk to them about this. This is what our ministries are all about. We see also in verse 24, Paul mentions his sufferings or his afflictions, whatever translation you're using. Any true Christian faith will have to come with afflictions because of Christ. Part of our privilege is the privilege of suffering and of sharing rather in Christ's sufferings. Not his substitutionary sufferings, but his larger rejection by this rebellious world. As Paul says in Romans 6 verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So sharing in the afflictions of Christ is part of our union with Christ. And that fits with what Paul says here about the body. Look at verse 24, chapter 1, verse 24 of Colossians. For his body, for his body. Why did Jesus do what he did? And Paul says here, for the sake of his body, 
which is the church. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, we Christians are presented as united to Christ in a most amazing way, from his suffering for us to our being called his body, to our sharing in his mission, even his cross, his resurrection, his destiny, all are said to be ours. True Christians have true Christian faith, which centers on Christ. It brings us into union with Christ, an actual personal relationship with him, indwelt by his own spirit. You look there down in verse 29 and you note the labor that Paul mentions. Paul had been so active. Paul had been engaged in rejoicing and suffering, in striving and serving and presenting and proclaiming and admonishing and teaching and struggling and fighting and telling and delighting. Paul worked and his primary work was preaching. That was the primary way, the primary activity through which God would reveal his great mystery. Paul knew Christ's power when he gave himself to Christ's work. True Christian faith is not lazy faith, but is faith like Paul's that works. But the main thing I want us to notice for this time tonight as a group of pastors here with God's word open is that Paul shared what he had been doing was for others. Did you notice that we find this word you and your repeated in our passage? You is the word which expresses the point of Paul's life and work. Really, we can summarize Paul's work with two words, proclaim and then present. Proclaim and then present. We spend most of our time talking about proclaim, and I'm delighted to talk about proclaim. But I do want to point out, brothers, we're not like, uh, you know, Snoopy lining up his little snowmen in the pew and like preaching to them. You know, like the point is just proclaiming. Brothers, there's a point to all that work you put into proclaiming. It's that you may present them before the Lord. Present your hearers. And Paul is so clear on that here. You see that very, very clearly in verse 28. There is the proclamation, the preaching, but notice the reason He wanted to proclaim the word to them so that he could one day present them fully mature before the throne of God. The preaching was of Christ and it was for them. It was for their sake. So in verse 24, we see that Christ's afflictions were for his body, the church. In that sense, Paul's sufferings were for us too. And that he was suffering for Christians, for the church. Look at all the ways that our text tells us Not only how Paul exerted himself, but to what end? Why did he do it? What he did, he did for others. Suffering, preaching, yearning to present, his proclaiming, his struggling. Look at verse 25. Paul said that he was absent from them in body. Remember, he was right now in prison in Rome for preaching this gospel. But he says he was present with them in spirit. Now, don't misunderstand that. He's not teaching the ubiquity of Paul. He's not teaching the omnipresence of an apostle. No, I think what Paul is referring to here is the fact that he not only cares for them and is praying for them, but he is actually, in a spiritual way, united to them, even where they are, by their also being united to Christ. 
we have this strange unity with our brothers and sisters in Kenya, in China, all around the world, even in California. If, if we truly are in Christ, this is the reality of that sentimental, oh, wherever you are, we can look at the same moon when that's true, but this is the real thing. We are united as Christians to the same Christ. We have this union that is inexplicable to our friends who don't know the Lord. And so it's no surprise that Paul genuinely cared about them. You look there in chapter 2, verse 5, it's apparent that Epaphras had given Paul a good report about them, that even though these Christians were threatened, they were still sound. And so looking at their military-like order and their fort-like firmness, Paul was delighted and he rejoiced because he knew that his work, at least for them, was not in vain. Paul suffered, we read in chapter 1, verse 24, for you, for your sake. He struggled, we read in chapter 2, verse 1, for you, or on your behalf. His goal, he says in verse 2, was for these Colossians to be encouraged and to be united in the truth and in love. What do you think when you hear it said that your purpose in your ministry is to encourage others? I think today we may hear a very weak rendition in our own minds of what those words mean. I think encouragement's often not understood today. Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan preacher in London in the first part of the 1600s, by the way, whose book Bruised Reed should be on all the Christian bookstores. You should be having that in your church. Uh, I'll be talking about Richard Sibbs a little bit more in my seminar tomorrow afternoon. Richard Sibbs was a great one for comfort. That would be his word. Not comfort simply in the sense of putting an arm around someone, but in the sense of putting strength into them, uh, putting heart, encouraging them, putting courage in them. Sibs once said that this should help us against Satan's transforming of God and Christ to us in the time of trouble. Then in the time of trouble, Satan presents God as a terrible judge. Indeed, so he is to sinners that will go on in sin. His wrath shall smoke against such. There is no comfort to them in Scripture. But to repentant sinners, said Sibs, all is comfort. Friends, Paul wrote to the Colossians, wanting to encourage these Christians. He also wanted them, the Colossian Christians, to be united in the truth. Paul wanted those treasures of wisdom and knowledge which were found in Christ to be had by these Colossians. So he says there in chapter 2, verse 2, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. I love how Paul just piles up the expressions there to show the wealth of what he's talking about. Full riches of complete understanding. Paul wanted these Colossians to know the truth so well that they would be able to discern the difference between right and wrong, between true and false. And Paul wanted them particularly to be united in love and the kind of concern for each other that he was showing to them by writing to them. He did what he did so that they would be of one heart, he says, one in mind. He cared that they not be deceived, that they discern the difference between true wisdom and false wisdom. So living for others typified Paul's whole life. Of course, the whole writing of this letter by Paul to these Christians that he didn't personally know exemplified this. We could go even so far as to say that Paul's whole life was cruciform. Paul heeded Christ's call to take up his cross and follow him. Paul's was like Christ's life, suffering 
and obedience to God on behalf of others. Paul's life wasn't substitutionary, but it was Christ-like in that sense. Suffering on, in obedience to God on behalf of others. Those of you who are here tonight, young men, who are considering the pastoral ministry, think long and hard about this passage. Notice that the ministry involves both proclaiming, standing up in front of people, telling the truth about the Word of God, but it also involves working to present the people of God mature before the Lord. Paul desired to present God's people fully mature, full grown, and he was willing to give himself to that end. It's interesting here in chapter 1, verse 28, that Paul doesn't say that he admonished and taught all men, but rather that he admonished and taught everyone, that is, each individual. Paul's language here heightens the sense that his concern is not just for faceless humanity, but for person after person after person, even if he hadn't met them or met them yet, that he might be a benefit to them. And so these three verbs here, proclaim, admonish, teach, suggest that this activity, which Paul was continually involved in, is what he has in mind. You know, Paul could have, I assume, closed his mouth, and that would have opened the gates of his prison. But he didn't. He kept his mouth open, even if that meant the prison doors stayed shut, because he knew he would do more good. He would glorify God and do good to others. Friends, consider the utter selflessness that this models for us who would be pastors. I don't want to moan, but I have to point out, especially given the natural human sinfulness in both church members and in pastors, that in ministry you will get bad stuff. In some ways, we're the ones in all of society who's most, who've most volunteered for that. We're saying, bring us your tired, your poor. Bring us your discouraged and depressed. Bring us your convicted. They're the ones we want to talk to. So friends, in the ministry, you will get bad stuff, but you must do it out of obedience to God and love to them, even if the people you're doing it for never seem to understand or appreciate it you might not get to your 50th anniversary. And when you do, they might not be so happy. (laughs) You have to have a genuine care and delight in them. I don't know how many of you have ever adopted a a theme verse for your life, but when I got to Washington, D.C., to my congregation that I serve now, uh, it had been founded in 1878, And they had a very long pastorate, almost the first half of the 20th century. And many of those members were still in the church when I got there. And this pastor had the habit of giving a little New Testament to each person he baptized, and he would write a life verse in the front of that New Testament. And many people have expressed the comfort and encouragement and instruction they took from these verses. Anybody here have such a life verse given to them, or maybe one they chose out? Just curious, raise your hand. I'm not going to have you share it. Just almost nobody. I bet you 50 years ago, a lot of hands would have gone up. That used to be a very common practice. Well, when I was a young Christian, I chose out a couple of life verses for myself. And they were these two verses. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Let me reread them. 
We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. In fact, when I went as an undergrad to a secular university, I wrote these verses out in large hand and put them up on the wall of my room. I wanted to remember why I was in college. It's to do that. Now, that was the reason. I am there for others to teach and preach and disciple. Brother Pastor, you are there for your understanding and to help them change through practices like church discipline. You see the implications of these two verses. Others coming to know Christ, evangelism and missions, reforming churches, sort of like Paul is doing here to this Colossian church by writing this to them. And Brother Pastor, if you are contributing to any of these things, it is because of God's Spirit's work in us. There's no reason for pride in the prosperity of the ministry any of us ever experience. Those of us who've experienced some obvious prosperity in ministry, I think, know this best. We sometimes feel like we just got to be there when all this happened. We, we can't write a book to tell you, oh, if you do these four things, then your church is going to do this. Any, church you ever, any book you ever see like that is false. Do not waste the time reading it. Now, friends, what we do, we do for God's glory and for the good of the people. There is no reason for pride in any prosperity we may see in God's work in your church or mine because it is God's work. And if we're Christians, we give ourselves for others even as Christ did. So true Christian faith is faith which works for others. Brother Pastor, do you ever care more about how your sermon goes than how the people who heard your sermon are? I want to ask that again. And it's a rhetorical question. I'd like there to be lots of silent answers. Do you ever care more about how your sermon goes than about how the people who heard it are? After the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, I love what Paul says to Barnabas. Acts 15, verse 36 this is the kind of verse you should underline in your Bible. Acts 15, verse 36. Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. I love how vague and comprehensive that phrase is. See how they are doing. It's not metrical. No mission board can ever count that up and raise money on the basis of it. It's just see how they're doing. There's something simply spiritual about it, simply true and good and smells like Jesus. See how they are doing. Do you ever ask that kind of examination, that kind of evaluation question? of the people in your own church? That's what we do as preachers and pastors, isn't it? We not only wanna make sure our sermon output is good, but we have a care for the specific people in front of us. For Aaron and Cassie and for Brad and for Mary, part of what Paul was laboring for was so that these Christians would mature and be, as he exhorts the Romans in Romans 15, 14, to be competent to instruct one another. You want the point of your ministry 
to be for each individual in your church in one sense to need you less. You want them to mature. What businessman carefully develops and rolls out the new product but doesn't care if people buy it? What teacher carefully prepares the lesson plan but doesn't care if the kids learn it? What parent carefully prepares the meal but doesn't care if the children eat it? We preach God's word so that the church will be built up. And that doesn't mainly mean so that there will be 400 and not 200 people coming to our congregation's meetings, but so that those who come to our congregation's meetings are growing, so that the fruit of the Spirit in their lives is showing. And as a young man, I would say showing increasingly. Now, as what is demographically, without doubt, an older man, I would say, I think, so that they are continuing to show the fruit of the Spirit. We can have a conversation about that afterwards. Why would he say increasing as a young man and continuing as an old man? Mm, good dinnertime conversation. You realize that God cares about growth. Growth is not merely a concern of forward-looking Americans. It's a concern of the Bible. Way back in Genesis 1.22, God commands the creatures of the land and sea to multiply. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in numbers and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And of course, he gave that command to Adam and Eve a few verses later in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every other living creature that moves on the ground. And after he had wiped out the world by judgment in the flood, what did he command the sons of Noah to do? In Genesis 9.1, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God promised increase to the children of Abraham, and he did increase their numbers even in servitude in Egypt. He increased their numbers once they got into the promised land. He even instructed the children of Israel when they were in exile in Babylon to increase in number. Jeremiah 29.6, Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. But the growth that we find talked of and urged and prayed for in the New Testament isn't simply numerical growth. There is the idea of growth, which involves more people, but there is also the idea in the New Testament of growth, which involves people more deeply. The idea of growing up, of a maturing and deepening. So we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, so how does this kind of growth happen? Well, ultimately, it's God's work. We grow as the body of Christ as God causes the growth. So a little bit later in Colossians chapter two, verse 19, we read about Christ as the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Or in the passage that John alluded to earlier this morning in 1 Corinthians three, when Paul said, talking about the Corinthian situation, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. 
The idea that growth comes from God is one that Jesus too had taught. Again, in the parable that John mentioned this morning from Mark 4, Jesus says that the growth of the kingdom of heaven ultimately depends not on man's will, but on God's. When he tells a story about the growth of the kingdom of God presented there as that crop growing in a field, he points out that night and day, whether the farmer sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. God causes the growth. That's why when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, he doesn't so much congratulate them on their growth as he does thank God for their growth. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Brothers, I'm bombarding you with a scripture treasury of truth about growth so that you can see a concern for such growth on the part of the preacher is right and it is godly, and a lack of that concern, conversely, is ungodly. So I am criticizing you, if you only care about how good you think your sermon is, and you have no care for how the people are receiving it. I'm telling you, that is a preaching ministry that is not known and presented in the positive annals of the New Testament. The church growth we work and pray for is not only a growing number of people, but a number of growing people in our church. After all, every member of our churches professes to be a believer, right? A follower of Jesus, a disciple. Okay, your job then as a pastor is to especially be faithful in discipling, and more than that, to work to create a culture of discipling in your church. The Bible presents humans as disciples by nature. The choice in the Garden of Eden was never one of discipleship versus independence, but rather of following God versus following Satan. We're gonna be following somebody. The story in the Old Testament Israel is one of the people following their leaders, either godly kings like Hezekiah or ungodly ones like his son Manasseh. Jesus recognized the need for good leadership of his people at the time of his coming when he observed that they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Ephesians, Paul described the Christian's former lives as ones in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So the call of faith is the call to begin following the word of that one who made us and is meant to lead us. Thus, Abraham is commended for his faith in following the call of God in Romans 4. So we are all disciples. The only question is, of whom? Now, under the sovereignty of God, the future generation of disciples depends upon us following the example of Jesus' first disciples. This seems to be the inescapable logic of Paul's reasoning in Romans chapter 10. Discipling is part of our own discipleship. Like Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he wants them to follow him insofar as he follows Christ. We are just a means of leading people to follow Jesus more and more closely. We want people to live not in view simply of today or even of tomorrow, but of eternity. And we wanna model that ourselves. Now, teaching truth is vital to biblical discipling. Biblically, though, this teaching which Jesus ordered as discipling was to be a teaching, we read in Matthew 28, 20, to obey. 
Not just teaching, but he specifically says a teaching to obey. This discipling was to be ultimately a practical exercise in seeing lives transformed. So the most fully biblical discipling will include more than simply preaching to a congregation or even reading with an individual member. The pastor's ministry is never less than faithful preaching, but it is certainly more than that, at least if we are to follow the model of Paul and ultimately of Jesus. The living out of the Christian life before others must be our basic model of discipling. So Jesus told us that the way people would know that we are his disciples would be by the way we live, if you love one another, John 13, 35. So even as Jesus gave himself for others, we too, if we're truly his disciples, give ourselves for others. Christ is our example. He selflessly, Paul, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, left you an example that you should follow. Thus Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, follow the way of love. Brother pastors, you realize in a relationship we communicate more than we know. Since we communicate not just by our words, but by our whole lives. There's no way to denigrate, I don't mean to denigrate the importance of words at all. God himself did not mutely act, but he repeatedly inspired prophets with his words until his revelation of himself finally culminated in the coming of the word. So in Jesus' life, we see the importance of both words and deeds, the importance of their being joined together. So teaching about the cross and the resurrection without the events themselves would be pointless. But equally pointless would be the actions of God with no explanation or no interpretation of their meaning, with no proclamation or instruction about their significance. So it's not surprising in John 13 that Jesus told the disciples to ensure that love, like his own love, would characterize their relationship together. In Matthew 28, that they were specifically to teach them his words. So we're aiming neither at ignorant inclusion nor at lone learning. Neither are to be the normal expression of following Jesus. They were not only to be taught, again, Matthew 28, 20, they were to be taught to obey. Now, I want to share with you personally for a few minutes of what I try to do in my role as a pastor to help and encourage other members of my church to grow in following Christ. What, what do I do as a pastor, the preacher of the church, to try to help make sure that in our church, it's not unusual when someone is growing spiritually, but actually it's more unusual when someone is not growing spiritually. How can I live out Paul's same passion that we see here in Colossians 1, 28 and 29 in my context as a pastor of a local church? How can I, through discipling, leave behind me time bombs of grace that are gonna go off long after I'm gone? I could mention many things, which I simply as a Christian could and should do to help others grow, like meeting up with folks regularly, reading the Bible with them, praying with them. But given that this is a conference of shepherds and this is your guys' work, I'm assuming every man in this room knows all of those things. So let me simply push you a lot, a little more rather, with just a few specifics. I, I could talk about lots of different things. Here are just a few examples of what I thought of in order to encourage you about the things you may be doing and provoke you with some new ideas if you're not. And I have nine of them. <laughs> Number one. Preaching. 
in your preaching, teach people the Bible. John, I don't think you told us anything today in your message except the Bible. I've come to expect that of you, brother. I really appreciate that. You have to be one of the best examples of simply standing up and speaking the Bible to people. I love the way you do that. Lig and I were just relishing that as we were driving off afterwards. Thank you so much. Brother pastors, we get to teach people the Bible. By preaching expositionally, we not only feed our people, but we teach them how to feed themselves. We even teach them how to eat. We give them examples of how to take in the scriptures. It's number one, preaching. Number two, prayer. Uh, my membership directory, which I left down at the seat, my membership directory, nah, don't worry about it. It's, uh, all right, give it to me. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Steve. Yeah, uh, I don't know if your church has one of these. Next to the Bible, this is my most important book. It's my little membership directory right here. Uh, it has every member of our church in here. Uh, name, address, email, way to get in touch with them uh, when they join the church. Uh, so this is every day, every morning in my quiet time, I, will, I may do more, but I will at least read the text that's going to be preached on this coming Lord's Day, and I will take from that, and I will pray through two pages of our directory. So that way I get through the whole directory in one month. That's just something practical that I try to do in praying. I think just having a directory like this is useful. I think using them privately by yourself praying is useful. I think talking about them like I'm doing right now with you is useful. Uh, we even have guidance on the front page about how you can use this for prayer. So you can be teaching your members that. And haven't you learned a lot by listening to others pray? I love hearing other people pray, especially when they pray well. So we want to disciple people even by the kinds of prayer we have in our main gathering on the Lord's Day morning. So we'll always have a prayer of praise where we're just talking to God publicly about how great he is. And we'll always have a prayer of confession. So we'll be telling him publicly, you're right when you say this about us. And we always have a pastoral prayer, a prayer of intercession, where we're asking the Lord, we're bringing him glory by showing how reliable he is how we need things and we ask him because we expect he will give because he's so faithful. So brothers, every single morning service, we always have all three of those prayers. So we're teaching people how to pray. We're discipling people. And even by the number of different people who lead those prayers or in the evening, we just have members of the congregation from their place pray brief prayers of intercession. Or as we disciple about what we pray about, Especially in that pastoral prayer in the morning, uh, that, uh, that, that's a prayer, uh, usually the preacher does it, so usually it's me. That prayer is usually about 10 minutes long. The prayer prays, prayer confession reaches like three to five minutes, but that pastoral prayer is usually about 10 minutes. And if any of you think you've ever heard me say anything controversial in my sermons, no, no, that's the tame part of what I do. If I really wanna get at something, like if I am really angered in my soul about the, the bills introduced in the New York legislature and the Virginia legislature, it doesn't come out in my sermon. It comes out in my pastoral prayer. And that's when I, I pray my heart out uh, for the Lord to have mercy and to extend his arm in power. I think what you pray about from the metro workers to the members of your church to other gospel preaching churches in town to Christians around the world who are being persecuted to people who are discouraged to praying through the points of your sermon without people realizing you're doing it. You're showing the extent of God's concerns with your life 
You're catechizing people. By the very things we lead people to pray about in our evening prayer meeting, we're catechizing the congregation. We're teaching them the kind of things they should be concerned about as we meet together. And by requiring folks to come, in our case, to our Sunday evening prayer meeting, if they're going to be in any kind of public leadership in our church, whether they're elders or deacons or leading in music or leading small groups, they have to be regularly at our prayer meeting. Uh, If they're not, then they can't be in any of those roles because we don't want them to be examples of those kinds of prayerless Christians. We want them praying for the church. And because we don't do our prayer meeting on Wednesday night, when I don't really feel I have any kind of authority, but on Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, and Ligon, though I'm not a Sabbatarian, I'm the pushiest Lord's Day guy you've ever seen. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I can make him feel guilty about Sundays. You know, I, I do think we have a special obligation in the New Testament to meet together on the Lord's Day. And if, if we can capture that and teach our people not to view Sunday as a second Saturday, but to understand Sunday is the market day of your soul, you need to give that first day of the week to the Lord as a testimony of you're giving him all seven days. The importance of prayer can disciple your church. That's number two. Number three, membership. Teaching and demanding adherence for each member to a statement of faith, what you believe. To a church covenant, how you will live is part of your discipling, your congregation. Number four, books. Have a church library where the books are carefully screened. Have a church bookstall where you sell things that are carefully screened. Give books away at the beginning of each Sunday evening service and Wednesday evening Bible study. So for example, interns, come on up quickly, quickly, here we go. All right, here's how I do it at church. Here's how I'm doing it right now. These are books I'm giving away right now. So uh, John gets a copy of Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. If you will read this soon, raise your hand, he's gonna give it to you. Vincent's gonna do the same. Gabe's gonna do the same. Mark, big Mark, has a copy of uh, American Gospel, the DVD, Christ Alone. If you will watch this soon, Mark is gonna bring it to you. You get to keep that and use it. J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Thank you, Wesley. Jacob has Remember Death by Matt McCullough. And Jonathan has that classic by J.C. Ryle, Holiness. So if you wanna read, now Holiness is big and do not lie. If If you take this book, you're saying you will read it soon, the whole thing. A lot of hands went down. Pastors are honest. Now, brothers, I I, I kid you not, for 25 years, I've been doing that. Every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. Now, what effect do you think that has on a church? They begin to learn who reliable authors are. They begin to learn what good books are, what good titles are. They read a book and get excited about it. They'd never thought about that stuff before. Then they get a couple more copies and read it with some other people. Do you see how you can disciple people powerfully by that? Number five, presence, just being around. After the AM service, after the PM service, after Bible study, you know where I am? I'm just standing at the main door in the back. Anybody can just walk up and talk to me that wants to. Just stand there and talk to whoever wants to come by. Use your lunches to meet up with folks. If Connie wants me to run and go get something at the store, I'll try to see if one of the interns wants to take 15 minutes and go with me or somebody else that I'm trying to talk to to see if I can somehow find out about how they're doing. Number six, conversation. Encourage people to have spiritual conversation. I wanna make it clear, I'm fine with people talking about the weather, about sports, about their job, about their kids, about politics even, depending on how they do it. But I also want it to be normal for the people in our congregation to talk openly with each other about how all these things relate to their faith in the Lord and in what they've been learning in the Word. I remember Morris Roberts, a dear faithful pastor in Inverness, 
uh, who edited the Banner Truth magazine for years. I remember hearing Morse one time at a Banner conference in um, Leicester say that one of the greatest privileges of his life was pastoring a congregation where the people loved to speak of the things of God. Oh, brother, pastor, don't you desire that? So I don't want the weird super spiritual thing where they never talk about anything else. That seems fake. doesn't seem real. But I do want them to honestly want to talk about the things of the Lord. I, I want them to be so involved in loving the Lord that it naturally consumes parts of their conversation with each other. Number seven, define. I, I regularly define discipling as trying to help somebody else follow Christ. Kind of like what Paul says here in Colossians 1.28. And I mention this in private and in public again and again, that evangelism and discipling are normal parts of our own discipleship, of our own following Christ. And I often put it like this, deliberately in a pushy way. If you are not regularly trying to help other people follow Jesus by evangelism and discipling, I don't know what you mean by you saying you're following Jesus. Let me say that again. I regularly say, if you're not regularly trying to help other people follow Jesus, I'm not sure what you mean when you say that you're following Jesus. Brothers, make that a regular part, that or something like it, a regular part of the words that come out of your mouth. Number eight, include people in the parts of your ministry that you're able to so that they learn how to visit, how to listen, how to share a psalm and pray in a hospital room, how to share the gospel with somebody. Logan and I had the joy of sitting with one of your members of Congress from California on our flight out here on Thursday and a wonderful time sharing the message that we preach with that dear congressperson. <laughs> and her chiefest colleague was two rows in front of us and came back and spoke to us as well and asked about Greg Gilbert's little book, Who is Jesus? Oh, what's that? That's good. Talk and pray. Show people how you care for your wife and your children. Don't be scared to show them that. You need to show them that. Even show people how you prepare a sermon. I like people know what's coming up, so we have a sermon card. I, I have an application grid I try to fill out as a way of meditating. I get other guys to come with me to, to think through what applications and implications could be. Because I use a manuscript, like right now, I actually read my sermon out loud on Saturday night to, to folks who come to my study at 9 o'clock to try to make it better. I'll read point one. I don't preach it, just reading it. And then I'll go around and make every person there tell me how I could make it better. Some of them try to tell me things they like. I'm not as interested in that. You know, I don't have time for the long list you would undoubtedly give me. I, 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 I simply want them to tell me, what could I do to make this better? Did you understand that word? Was that allusion to the NFL accurate or not? <laughs> Did I misplace where the Raiders are this year? You know. I have a service review on Sunday night where uh, all the staff and interns come back and we enjoy speaking uh, about how the service was and how the sermon was. And again there, I, I, I seriously don't mind being encouraged but I, I get a good bit of that, and I really am curious, is there anything we could learn from what, what you might have questions about or what you think I might have, have done not well? And then 
even having many different preachers. So we have a lot of different guys in our church preach and our Sunday evening prayer meeting, because we only have about 15 minutes, I assign the text. And that way, a lot of different people in the church are actually trying to practice teaching God's word to others, and they come to appreciate it better. Number nine, public services. In your public services, have them led thoughtfully in a way that will help others understand what is going on and appreciate it. So even in the way I introduce the pastoral prayer, when I will say something like, friends, we have praised God by, by saying what is good about him, We've praised him even as we've confessed our sins. Let's praise him now by relying on him, by showing that he is good and we can utterly depend on him. You see how much teaching goes in just in the way you open up a prayer. So thoughtfully lead your services together. So many more things we could say, but we should conclude. Thinking back to our passage in Colossians, we see that real Christian faith is centered in the mystery, which has become an open secret, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any true Christian faith we have has come to us because of the afflictions of Christ. True Christian faith brings us into union with Christ, an actual personal relationship with him. And true Christian faith is not lazy faith, but it's faith like Paul's that works. And what we spend most of our time thinking about from Colossians 1, 28 and 29 is that true Christian faith, which works, works for others. So we, like Paul, should be faithful in discipling. There is so much more we could say on this topic, almost an infinite amount. It is a topic that is close to my heart and dear to me. Friends, God's people have spread around the world sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and making disciples. And so the church has grown. And if your church is experiencing real growth right now, that's what's going on. It's part of the journey to the book of Revelation where we see that culmination of history presented in the heavenly city, an eternal society of light in which God himself is personally present. So the fellowship of Eden has been restored, only this time the number of inhabitants has been multiplied many millions of times over, as has the intimacy of fellowship, since God's own spirit inhabits all those who trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. The garden has become a city. Faith gives way to sight. God's glory is magnified as the eternal love between the three persons of the Trinity is reflected forever in the interpersonal love shared between the bride and the bridegroom, the church and Christ. You think of Christ's prayer for his disciples in John 17, 26. It's answered. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Friends, in that city, we Christians will enter fully and eternally into the love of God. The church on earth today presents the glimmering and growing picture of this coming reality. To this end, we labor. To this end, we disciple everyone we can. Let's pray. Lord God, you know the truth of our own hearts and our lives and our ministries, how utterly insufficient we are for these things. Do these things for our good and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.